You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 5, the final episode of the Sight Bites Podcast for Season 1, Canyon of Contention, where we go in-depth on prominent archaeological landscapes. I am your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by this season's featured co-host, Robert Weiner. For the topic of this episode, Descendant Communities Perspectives, we have the pleasure of having Patrick Cruz from the Village of the Strong People, Oke Owinge, with us as our guest. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us this evening. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me, guys. Of course. Now, did I did I pronounce Oke Owinge correctly or, or, or did I butcher it? You did it perfectly. Yep. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. So we wanted to, for our audience why we have had Patrick on one. He's a, one of our fellow colleagues at the university of Colorado Boulder. Also, he is Pueblo. He's, he's, he comes from one of these descendant populations of, of the Southwest, you know, specifically, as we said, a specific Pueblo, okay. Wingue. And so, I mean, just, just to start off, Patrick, what is, what's your professional and personal relationship to, um, you know, Chaco Canyon or, or even greater than that with Southwest archeology? span well, I kind of wear two different hats. I wear an archaeologist hat, and then I have my own indigenous hat, if you want to say that. Uh, I grew up learning about traditions and whatnot at Okeowinge with my family. You know, so history is important. Ancestral sites are important. That's all important to our understanding of the culture and, and where the people came from. I, I mix that up a little bit with archaeology because I'm also coming in from a professional background in, in that field. So sometimes I jump around between the two, and so I, I apologize if I, I do that. It may, may seem a little confusing because I switch hats at random. <laughs> so, But yeah, Chaco is really important uh, as a really formative cultural sequence in the Southwest that really was it was formative in producing what I guess it would be the current Pueblo culture, if you want to call it that. And then, of course, you have to understand Chaco Canyon is so formative for, for everything else from the archaeological aspect of the Pueblo Southwest. So uh, Chaco is pretty central, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Now, how many different Pueblos are there? And are they all part of the same language family? Like, what do contemporary Puebloans look like today in contemporary American culture and society? Well, there's several different languages, and some of them are related, and some of them are not related in any way, shape, or form. So you have you have Carison, and there's a number of villages that are associated with that language. There's Zuni, there's Hopi, of course, and several villages are you know, you can think of Hopi, for an example, is actually, you know, it's a tribe, but it's comprised of several villages. And then, of course, there's there's my group, there's Tewa, there's the Towa speaking language, which is really spoken only by Hamas, and then there's the Tiwa language. There have been other ancestral, uh, other languages, Pueblo languages in the past, such as Puro, that uh, aren't spoken anymore. But so some of these languages are related, some of them aren't, and everyone's kind of distributed from, from the Rio Grande to Arizona, to the mesas up there. And yeah, that's that's kind of the, the situation as it is now. One of the interesting things is for, for Zuni and for for Carison, they seem to be what, what are considered linguistic isolates. 
and that they don't seem to have any other languages that are spoken that are related to them. So that's kind of interesting for them. And then for Hopi, they're Uto Aztecan, so they're they're uh, related to a bunch of other indigenous groups throughout the the Southwest and into Mexico as well. And then for for the Tewa, the Tewa language is related to Tiwa and Toa, which are mostly located in and around the Rio Grande. So they are related to each other. So quite a bit of a difference. I mean, there's the some of the languages are just completely they don't relate. I mean, there's unintelligible with each other. So, but one common culture. Well, understood. I get, I get your point there. And for our, for our listeners, Patrick, because the, the population of indigenous people within the professional field of archaeology is, is rather small. Um, it's definitely growing. And for, for our listeners out there, could you go through your, you know, academic and professional journey in archaeology? Like what got you inspired to become an archaeologist? Where'd you go to school, both undergrad, graduate? Where did you work in between? And why are you our colleague here at CU Boulder? Well, I started my journey at Bandelier National Monument. And I was a summer student that was looking for a job. And I, I was looking for something in forestry or national parks. And I got a job at Bandelier and they they put me in a uh, Pueblo work youth group. I wasn't expecting that. I just went in to see if I could get a job with them. And, and I started working automatically with a number of other youths from the different Pueblos that were doing trail maintenance and, and other activities. And uh, so that's kind of where I got it started. And from there, we started working with historic preservation. We started, I started to encounter field schools at Bandelier. So usually it was from the University of Pennsylvania. And so we had a number of field schools come in and they were a mix of archeology span and historic preservation. And, and I started working alongside archeologists. First time I, I had encountered archeologists and grad students. And from there, I, I sort of just took off. We, you know, we were working on preservation of some of the uh, cave eights at Bandelier, documentation of some of those and documenting some of the, the ruins at Bandelier. So I started doing that every summer. And I guess working alongside grad students in these different programs and professional archaeologists, that's kind of where I, I kind of got inspired and interested in what archaeologists do. And from there, I mean, I, I didn't really think of archaeology as a career for myself. So I went off to Fort Lewis College in Durango. And I was I was working in biology or studying biology, and then I was studying. I had thoughts that maybe at some point I would transition into forestry. And I learned that a, a lot of the biology was chemistry-based and whatnot, and I, I wasn't as interested in that. I guess I was more interested in the human aspect of, of it and the relationship between plants and animals and people. And that's not what really, you know, some of the topics I was studying were about. So I realized then that, you know, what I was really interested in probably was, was anthropology. So I transitioned to the anthropology department at Fort Lewis. And it was interesting because I, uh, I was a little hesitant about some of it because I was, I was coming in from the pre preconceived notions of what little I knew about archaeology was that archaeology was interesting. They told you a lot about the past that otherwise you couldn't learn, but also Coming in from an indigenous perspective, it was also my opinion at the time that I was going to Fort Lewis, I thought of it as taboo. 
it's like no no indigenous person would go into archaeology you know so i felt like i was treading uh i don't know i was i was uh kind of in a place I, I shouldn't be but at the same time i was really interested in it i i've grown more out of you know since then obviously but uh, but that was kind of what i was thinking when i was an undergrad first putting my feet in the the water so to speak of archaeology in the field i was really lucky that one of my uh colleagues at fort lewis also an undergrad but at the time uh will sosi was going there and he's a navajo archaeologist and so he was really inspirational for me and encouraging and showing that it's it's okay for for native americans to be involved and interested because uh, they have a lot to actually contribute and and we're you know dealing with the culture that uh we're a part of almost like we have a responsibility to do it and i attribute attribute a lot of that to to him for inspiration for the things i've done from there, I did the anthropology classes. I graduated. I started working at the Center of Southwest Studies, which is it's a museum slash library and archives at Fort Lewis College. And I didn't really think much more of archaeology at the time. I was working with archaeology materials and collections, but I was doing it more from a museum perspective. And then after that, I, I moved on to the New Mexico History Museum in Santa Fe. And there I was doing, again, it was a museum career field. It was collections management, and but a historical objects. And this is where I was like, okay, I like museums. I'm doing museum work. It's interesting. But what was missing for, for me was that it didn't have anything to do with indigenous groups. It didn't have anything to do with the, the archaeology uh, of the Southwest. It was all about colonial era and, and later materials. So I finally decided that, you know what, if I'm really interested in anthropology and archaeology, and I'm really interested in doing a career in uh, basically a study of the Pueblo Southwest, I, I should go back to school. So I went back to school at CU Boulder under Scott Ortman. And, you know, Scott was also really, really inspirational because I didn't know, I wasn't thinking in terms of going back to school, but then I, I read his, uh, his book, Winds of the North, and I read it like you know, cover to cover. And uh, I was like, this is what I want to do. This is great, you know. And then I had the, the fortune to meet him. So we met at the Blue Corn Cafe in, in Santa Fe. And I was just like telling him, I was like, you know, I love the book. And, you know, we, we talked about the topics and and everything. And then he was encouraging about like, why don't you uh, think about, you know, grad school and and so I did. And uh, next thing you know, I was at CU Boulder and did my master's there in archaeology. And now I'm working on a PhD. And that's kind of the roundabout way of how I got to where I am. So I didn't mean to get here, but I'm happy I have. So Excellent. And how'd you take the news that there was another indigenous student showing up to Boulder and, and taking up space in your office? <laughs> no, it was competition, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Well, it's been really nice. I know for for me personally, having having you in the department because I I have never been in an anthro department with another indigenous person. I mean, there might have been some that claimed that they had a, their great great grandmother was a Cherokee princess, which happened more frequently <laughs> than it should have. But like to have another, you know, you know, real uh, real Indian working working together has, has been a, a great pleasure for me. So. Mm -hmm. We're almost done with this segment, but you know, Patrick, what's you, you've kind of 
danced around it a bit, I guess, like mm. in terms of like in, in indigenous perspectives by and large of archaeology aren't very positive. And like, could you summarize why, why that is? Well, uh, part of it, I think, is that especially earlier, say in the 80s, 70s, you know, the 60s and so on, you, and you, you start to get into earlier forms of anthropology that was more science based and, and based on the what they call, you know, processual and whatnot. It was it was very much about the environment. It was very deterministic. It was very much not driven by culture. And it was everything was basically driven on survival and how do you and efficiency and all that. And it, that's not really how people work. And it was very dismissive of indigenous perspectives and it was dismissive of indigenous cultures. And so I think that for a, a number of native you know, descendant communities, they almost felt excluded and that their perspective really wasn't uh, respected or, or wanted. And so, you know, they, they really didn't work too much, I think, with archaeologists at the time. And I think that archaeologists at the time were, were fine with that because they wanted to do their own projects without being hindered by indigenous voices coming in and making suggestions or, or whatnot. Yeah, so, so it definitely had a, a little bit of uh, hostility. And of course, we can go further back and even earlier in anthropology, archaeology, a lot of the, the native communities throughout the U.S. have have been used and have experienced a lot of trauma related to researchers and archaeologists and uh, people essentially mining indigenous people for information. Some of that is, is just, you know, it's been very damaging to communities. Hopefully it's gotten better. I mean, it has gotten better, but definitely that's where a lot of that hostility was coming out of. Thanks for sharing that, Patrick. I know that especially recently within the past two or three years, I'd say it's I would say it's getting close, closer to standard practice in the Southwest to work with some sort of native community or be somehow involved with Pueblo people today for those working in the northern Southwest. I did an online talk earlier this year with Crow Canyon and Almost immediately upon um, the end of the talk, the, you know, questions were rolling in on the Q&A. Who are you collaborating with? You know, what do the current day indigenous people have to say about these roads? So I have a, I think I'm optimistic that both the field and the public at large are becoming more aware that the archaeological past is not the purview of just academic predominantly white scholars marching in and learning about the past, but that, you know, there's people for whom these sites mean a lot and, and have a lot of knowledge about them. Some of which can be shared, some can't, but, uh, I, I, I tend to think we're moving in a positive direction. Definitely. You know, one of the things that was sort of eye opening for me is that I did go to a, uh, a small little conference on, on, uh, the subject matter of the NAGPRO and I was, Coming from this from the perspective of having worked at Bandelier and, and the thing about Bandelier back in the 90s and the and, you know early 2000s was that it was very collaborative. And the, so the Park Service worked quite a bit with the local Pueblos. And, and so there was a, actually a, a pretty good relationship between them and the archaeologists there, the park archaeologists and, and the field schools. So I was coming in from a perspective of, well, this is how it normally operates. And the relationship is actually fairly, fairly good. 
And when I went to this NAGPRA conference, I had sort of this eye-opening experience that a lot of communities, indigenous communities from elsewhere in the U.S., outside of the Southwest, I mean, we're talking about places that are more in the, the north, northeast and, and whatnot. And, and it was it was almost the perspective that it was still very hostile. And so I was I was actually kind of surprised on that. So I was really sort of eye opening because I was like, huh, so maybe this isn't how it's always operated everywhere. So, yeah, but I, I, I totally agree. I think that it, it is moving in the right direction. Certainly in the Southwest, I mean, nothing really happens without consulting indigenous communities and and indigenous communities do have a lot of say about the activities that archaeologists do. So, um, and, and actually now it's like, it's not even, it's more like, like a partnership in which the communities are working in partner with, with archaeologists on topics, because oftentimes the topics actually matter to the communities. In fact, the communities might want to know about some of the stuff that the archaeologists are finding. So it's almost like they're working in tandem together. So, yeah, so definitely a huge improvement. Absolutely. I'd have to agree. And, you know, everyone just stay tuned and uh, we'll be right back after these messages with Patrick Cruz to talk more about indigenous archaeology here in uh, the Chaco region. Welcome back to segment two of episode five, season one of the Sight Bites podcast. This is Rob Weiner, co-host with Carlton Gover. And we are here today with Patrick Cruz sharing with us about the experience of being an indigenous archaeologist in the U.S. Southwest. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, just what I wanted to ask you, Patrick, you know, what are some some of the ways that you've noticed that archaeological and traditional indigenous perspectives of the past collide? Could you follow up with maybe some of the ways they contribute to one another? Yeah, so uh, hmm. can you give me some more examples maybe real quick? One thing that sticks out to me from visiting sites with with native colleagues is that it seems oftentimes from the traditional perspective the specifics of like this happened in 1000 ce or this is a gallop black on white like some of the more typological and chronological questions are less important than things like looking up at the surrounding landscape and what you know mountains are visible or what is seen in the designs on the pottery, not just like, oh, this is a gallop black on white or, you know, some of the more like, as you said in, in the earlier segment, like, OK, but what does this have to do with people or what does this have to do with the culture? Yeah, so that's exactly it, too. What's interesting is that that's one of the the, uh, the things that indigenous folks have, have mentioned about archaeologists is that they spend all this time looking on the ground looking at objects, looking at features on the ground, looking at a site within the boundaries of that site. And one of the things that uh, a lot of cultural leaders coming in have mentioned is that, you know, the sites, those, those are important. All that stuff, all that cultural material is important. But if you want to put the site within context, you have to look up. You have to look up at the landscape. All of these things are, it's, it's almost like how archaeologists say, you know, you can't remove pottery shards or whatnot from a site because once it's removed, you've lost the context. And that's how I think of it is that sites that are not understood within a broader landscape, it's out of context. 
So, yeah, I mean, you know, there's the people that lived in these places, they, they, they put their villages there for, yeah, I mean, there might be environmental reasons, maybe, maybe dependent on water or, or food resources or whatever, but there's also cultural reasons why the site might be there. And it has to do with the, uh, the mountain peaks, certain hills, certain landscape features. There's other reasons for putting a site there than purely like the survival mode, you know, decisions. And so that's, that's something that archaeology has been missing and that when you invite cultural leaders in and they can mention those things, they can mention, well, this place is here because, you know, you can see a gap between these two peaks that looks at another mountain that's further back behind that, that range. Or there's some other reason that that site might be there that archaeology might not have ever asked the co- those questions. They might not have looked broader you know, or, or outside of those that archaeological site. So I think, you know, things like that is where you sort of get like this this partnership in the sense that they are playing off of each other. You know, the archaeologist does bring in a specialty where they do have chronology figured out and they can talk about pottery types and timelines and and uh, other other uh, diagnostic features of tools and things like that but indigenous groups can come in with stories related to, to places stories that might relate to important events in the past why why maybe some sort of change in the culture happened near or around that place you know so they they do build off each other Together, archaeology and the indigenous perspectives complete sort of a it's a more holistic look at at the the past and at those sites. To look at at any site with just you know just the archaeology perspective, it's a very incomplete look, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. And I know our guests in the in the previous four episodes have kind of alluded to this, and you know, Doctor Doctor Lexen in episode four explicitly stated, you know, like a lot of issues in archaeology in general stem from that new archaeological approach or the processual paradigm in which a bunch of guys just put on lab coats and decided that archaeology was science and basically just did bean counting and came up with these like prey choice models or environmental determinalism that everything can be explained in these grand models of of environment to identify human behavior. And what you've just talked about is like, there, these are still people and there's ulterior means for making your home somewhere just outside of, you know, environmental practices or the availability of game that there, there are these socio-religious aspects that people still have today in which they say, you know what, this is a good place rather than like, all right, what's the annual rainfall here? Like how many hectares of, of corn can we uh, procure from this environment? What alternative, pray do we have our availability you know and so you know absolutely i think i think that was well put patrick well and i would also say that th- those more like scientific questions about food production or any you know resource procurement that's stuff that isn't really as interesting to indigenous communities they're more interested in the cultural aspects on how a site fit into their their oral stories and whatnot so the, the archaeology at the time didn't answer anything that was of interest for a lot of the communities, whereas now I think that uh, working uh, you know, hand in hand together, that anthropology or archaeology is asking more pertinent questions that the tribes are interested in now. I think this conversation relates really nicely to 
some that we've had on earlier episodes where we talked about the setting of Chaco Canyon in a, an area that to many of us, we show up and it's like, wow, this is so harsh. There are no trees. And then you know, there's all these debates about how agriculturally productive it was. And the big question of Chaco archaeology, right, is why, why would they build in this place that was so harsh? And I think what our conversation right now is helping bring to light is that there's a lot of, of reasons why a place might be chosen, especially for the sort of really extravagant developments like we see in Chaco Canyon that, yeah, like, like you were saying, Patrick, has to do with the surrounding landforms. So I think this specific topic relates really in an important way to, to Chaco and archaeology. And on that note, I was curious if, if you know, you had any reflections from visiting Chaco or, or other ancestral Pueblo sites in that Four Corners region. Something that's always struck me is that it's, I mean, you know, you know, when you're in the Rio Grande Valley near Okeawinge and the Tewa Pueblos today, there's the beautiful Rio Grande River, big trees. And then you get in the San Juan Basin and it's like a completely different environment. So I wonder if you have reflections from visiting sites in, in that more ancestral region of the Four Corners as compared to the Rio Grande and, and just that environmental difference. Yeah, I mean, well, especially if you, you're talking about Chaco, I mean, the, the differences are pretty stark. But when I think of, of Mesa Verde and I compare that to what I'm usually thinking of is more of the Pajarito up in the Jemez, I I don't see them as being, I mean, they're, they're distinct in some aspects, but in some ways, they're, to me, they're almost continuations. Maybe the people have moved down from, from some of those higher elevation, you know, plateau areas down into the river valley. But still, if you think about the higher elevation locations that, that people were living at, you know, the top of plateaus and whatnot, I don't think it's it's as distinct from, from say, Mesa Verde area as, as, you know, something like Chaco is, is a little more distinct just because it's it's much more arid. There certainly is no no river or anything over there to provide any sort of riparian environment. But yeah, it's just, for me, I, I guess I just, just think of it as being a continuation of occupation, just a different different location, but same people. I don't know if that makes any sense. It absolutely does. And, you know, like hearing you, hearing you talk about these reflections of yours at ancestral sites, you know, really, I, I've had the the privilege and pleasure of being able to like go with you to some of these ancestral places. Like one was for the um, Chop and Mesa renovation project where we got to go down to Durango Cortez. And I think we even drove to like Farmington the first day to meet with descendant communities. And I remember standing there next to you and like a bunch of other of our colleagues and a bunch of descendant communities, Tippos were talking, talking to us about the importance of indigenous knowledge. And me and you were just kind of like giggling, like this is not a conversation for us. This is for everybody else. Or something that still sticks out to my mind is when we went to Mesa Verde, like we got to go, you know, see the Chop and Mesa museum and we got to go see the cliff dwellings. You know, everyone else kind of like ran off and was looking, you know, and talking and like really excited to be at Mesa Verde. And I remember I just kind of stuck with you and just kind of followed behind you real quiet. And and as, as you looked at Mesa Verde and some of these cliff dwellings were just really quiet. And I can like tell that you were, you were thinking pretty deeply. And I just wanted to be like in your presence of that connection. And it was, I don't know, 
how do I explain it without sounding like a new age hippie? It was power. It was a powerful moment because I'm like, I'm sitting here or standing there with a descendant of the peoples who, who built Mesa Verde. And just to put that in, in context was, was huge. Cause you know, many people that visit that park don't get that experience. And then of course, recently you, me and you got back from a hunting trip where every morning we woke up in the shadow of Mesa Verde and we were in the Four Corners region. We could see, we were, you know, in Colorado, but we could see New Mexico, we could see Utah, and we could see Arizona from where our camp was set up. And just to be in, in that place with you was, again, another another powerful moment. So, you know, as, as you reflect on your experiences, I'm reflecting on mine with you. You know, what, how do you want, you're a father, I want to know, how do you want your your children to relate to Chaco, Mesa Verde, or, or these ancestral places there in the Southwest? So I guess I guess one way to, to think about this is continuity. And so I, I might digress into, like you were saying, new agey stuff. But uh, Hey, I'm the guy from Santa Fe here. <laughs> <laughs> With crystals and all, right? <laughs> all of these sites that have been occupied in the past, the the idea or the understanding that I have from how I grew up, how my my folks and uncles and aunts and you know grandparents have talked about, these are all places that are they were occupied in the past, they are still occupied today. In some way, shape, or form, the people, the inhabitants of these sites are still there. They're still doing their thing. They're, they're doing their thing basically the same as they've always done. And so when we visit the, these sites, we sort of have this there's – there's this understanding that we are visiting these sites and these people are still there. And they're still, they're still doing the things that they did in the past. And in some ways, we're, we're just visitors, but they're considered living spaces. So – so if you, if you were to go to a, a, a site, a, a quote-unquote ruin, as, as uh, a lot of you know, folks would talk about you know, these sites, and we would go there and we would understand things as sort of the uh, – you know, maybe, maybe the site, you don't see the people. You know, the, the structures aren't really built up anymore. They're mounds now, but they're, the people in some way, shape, or form are still there. And even when you visit, say, some of the rooms, I remember one elder telling me that you should enter a room in a certain uh, direction because that's probably where the doorway more or less had been. And it would be more or less impolite to to come in from an er direction that uh, a door obviously would not have been. I remember having discussions with my aunt and my my grandma where they were talking about going into cavates at Bandelier. And every time you walk into one of these places, you say good morning and you explain that you're, you're there and that you have respect for them. And then you go about your business. It's, it's almost like this idea of, of a Pueblo feast day that you're visiting. You're a guest and then you leave. So when you're visiting places like Mesa Verde or Chaco, it's, it's not an empty landscape. It's, it's an, rather than an empty landscape, it's, it's, a landscape that's full of people, full of life. There's there's elders, there's people in mid-age, there's kids running around in some way, shape, or form that you may not see, but they're there. And you're there. 
And so, you know, when people talk about words like ruins and abandoned, those obviously don't apply from the Pueblo perspective when you're thinking about them in this this way. So yeah, so when I'm visiting sites like this, like like Chaco and Mesa Verde, I'm certainly coming from from I'm visiting them with this perspective that I'm just someone that happens to be there among amongst many, and even though you can't see them, they're there, and. So yeah, I guess that's that may be a different way of, of looking at it than say most visitors who come in and see mounds and rock walls that have fallen that have all this you know weeds and things on it that have grown in and uh, yeah, I mean to me they're living places. And you know when you were talking about hunting, I I thought it was fantastic to to be out there. I've never hunted out there, and you know for me it was it was kind of of a connection to the past because I was hunting the same landscape that, you know, our ancestors once, you know, dwelt on and, and probably were, were walking more or less in the same areas and, you know, so doing the same things. And that was really special to me to do that within sight of places like Mesa Verde. So, so yeah, again, it's, it's continuity to me. Absolutely. And I think, you know, your ancestors knew you were there because you, Bagged your elk pretty soon after arriving. Yeah, I feel bad about that. I mean, I, I'm happy about it. I'm really happy about it. But at the same time, I'm trying not to gloat because I showed up and within an hour and a half, I got something. And you guys have been there for, what, two days? We had been there for three days at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so stay tuned. We're going to finish up this conversation with Patrick Cruz right after these messages. Welcome back to Sight Bites Podcast. Here we are with the final segment of the final episode of season one. We're here with Patrick Cruz. I'm joined by my co-host, Rob Weiner. And I think what's what's really important, as, as we've alluded to and talked about through the course of these five episodes, is the, the need for indigenous perspectives. And I think this would be like a good place, as, as me and Patrick have talked about, these indigenous perspectives. But Rob actually collaborates with uh, with the Navajo Nation and his research. So, I mean, like, Rob, could you provide our listeners with that perspective and why you needed to do that? Absolutely. So one of the interesting facts about Chacoan archaeology is that we've talked about the outlier great houses in earlier episodes, these settlements related to the Central Canyon with this characteristic, you know, monumental architecture and roads. The majority of those sites are located on the Navajo Nation in uh, New Mexico and Arizona and others up into Utah. So if, if we want to learn about this larger Chaco world, there's, you know, it's not going to happen without working together with the Navajo tribe. It could be a long discussion because I'd say a predominant view is that, oh, these are, the sites are not connected to the Navajo people. They came into the Southwest later. Um, there's a variety of issues with that perspective. I think the simplest way to say it from what I've learned working with the tribe is that not all Navajo people are descendants of the ancient Chacoans and others who lived in the Four Corners, but but some are. And it really depends on a person's clan affiliation. So I think the, the, the misunderstandings that where, you know, we can just slap on this label of these people are Navajo and these ancient people were not. And there can be a lot of confusion and miscommunications, which has led to a lack of collaboration and and archaeological research on the Chacoan sites on the Navajo Nation. So I was 
fortunate, you know, I, I reached out and, and talked to the uh, people in Navajo Nation Historic uh, Preservation Office that, you know, be interested in working on specifically on some of the roads and the outliers on, on the tribal lands and things have moved along smoothly. You know, I'd, I'd say one of the interesting things about collaborating, you know, I think collaboration with indigenous peoples happens in a lot of different ways. You, you can both attest to this much better than I am sure. But, you know, part of what's been interesting for me is that sometimes it's it's just a very low key process. It's not sort of like you have to do this. And often there's less said than more when I feel like I'm doing things right. Actually, there's less said. And I think that probably takes a lot of getting used to for for many of us non-native people that we can be so programmed to talk, talk, talk and ask questions. And sometimes, you know, sharing what I do is I share the mapping and the research I've done. And oftentimes there's not a lot of conversation. And usually that means, okay, keep going. And an additional aspect of my work has been learning from the some of the oral traditions that the Navajo people have about the Chacoan sites. Some of these, of course, are not to be shared publicly. Others have been written in print. Most, most notably, what my master's thesis was on was the, the Navajo stories about a figure called the Great Gambler, who was said to be a, a very powerful figure who ruled over Chaco and... The stories talk about a lot of gambling happening there and actually people becoming enslaved through gambling. Interestingly, we talked about captives in the past with Professor Cameron and some possible archaeological evidence for that at Chaco. So, you know, it's I, I think the more we open up to the stories that that are available to be shared publicly, the more it's going to enrich our archaeological investigations. I mean, just briefly, my MA thesis looked at these stories, uh, oral traditions about gambling at Chaco and asked, you know, very simply, well, what's the archaeological evidence of gambling like? And it turned out there were hundreds and hundreds of dice and kick sticks and shinny sticks and all other kinds of implements used in gaming practices historically in both Pueblo and Navajo cultures in the buildings at Chaco. And this was a line of of understanding the past that had gone totally overlooked because people weren't engaging with the oral histories. So that's just one small example from my research of how by taking these stories seriously, you know, entirely new insights about the past can open up. And that I think all too often the tendency, you know, in the past especially has been that, oh, oral traditions are unreliable people just making, especially with the Navajo, right? Oh, they came in late and they're just making up stories. But really seeing that, you know, of course, Native people know their own histories. They're, from what I've learned, there's extremely tight protocols for ensuring oral traditions being passed on are passed on with great fidelity. And if you, you know, <laughs> making a mistake in, in a recitation is not a, is not a good thing. And it's just at like, there can be really an overprivileging of writing. So, yeah, I think that's, that's part of what I've learned is that as, Pat, as we were talking about with Patrick, looking up, looking at the surrounding landscape, opening to the oral histories and knowing what can be shared and, and what needs to stay private. And then also just the importance of 
that sometimes it's not going to be a big happy fest where everybody's saying how great the archaeological work is and and a lot of talky talk and more sometimes that less being said might mean more. Yeah, absolutely, Robin. You know, thank you, thank you for sharing and about about the importance of these things and the and the complexity and and indigenous nations' views of the past and how how these things are all inter interrelated and how they provide greater, as as Patrick said, you know, you get more holistic interpretations by incorporating indigenous knowledge. Yeah, so Rob, you're exactly right. Something that I think that a lot of people don't recognize. People that are that are not familiar with archaeology, people that are oftentimes are part of archaeology, and even even indigenous communities sometimes think of this, you know, fall into this this idea that a group is bounded, and it's it's been that way, and it's always been that way, and you can track a group into the past with no problem because it's it's all about the continuity of the community, and that's not always the case. You know, basically, you know, people are people, people move, people, you know, intermarry with other with other folks. And when a new community shows up that maybe speak a little bit different language or have a little bit different cultural ways, they still interact and oftentimes marry in. And so it's more fluid. And, and certainly I think in the past it was more fluid where people moved across cultural boundaries with with no problem. And so it, it makes it a little more difficult for identifying specific cultural groups oftentimes with specific tribes, I guess, trying to relate to how to them to the past. They they definitely, you know, do relate and they're they're all, you know, part of that cultural group in the past, but oftentimes the communities themselves are they're just they're just different. They're a different nature. The community may not have existed in the way that we understand it to be. Yes, you know, people are people. People just move around a lot. And and cultures are not as bounded, or certainly at the time, they were not not as bounded as, as I think that we oftentimes assume they were. A lot of the, the boundedness, I think, actually comes from, from the, the colonial experience when you have the arrival of, of, of European powers that essentially colonize the landscape. And in doing so, they formalized communities. They, they set boundaries on who's a community member. They uh, fix communities and space in, in a place. And I think that a lot of that boundedness that we see today, that we think of as the tribes today, oftentimes is, is really imposed from historical circumstances. Yeah, one one example of a story that was shared with me that I think sums this up really nicely is is from out in Navajo land. One of my colleagues was out mapping Chacoan roads and was talking to the the family that lived near one of these roads and they of course knew about it and said, "Oh yeah, there's an ancient road here that went back to Chaco and my grandparents always told us don't herd the sheep down the road cuz that's a bad place. That's where we don't go." And then uh, a couple of weeks later, this person was at another Chacoan road, just, you know, a short distance away. And, and the people living there said, oh, yeah, our grandparents always told us to herd the sheep down the Chacoan road because that's where they'd be safe because that's a good place. And of course, you think, well, but, but they're both Navajo. How could they, you know, the, again, that idea of bounded identities. But it turns out these people were from different clans. One of those clans tied its origins back to Chaco and the ancient Four Corners times and the other 
person's clan did not have that ancestry. And yet so commonly in our discourse, especially um, both, you know, I'd say in academia and outside of academia, it's all lumped together with these ethnic labels like Navajo, Pueblo. And so that example really drove that home for me. Yeah, absolutely. And we we experienced kind of those same things on the plains, which I won't, I won't get into, but you know, Patrick, what are you working on now, man? Like what's, what's the future for Patrick Cruz? What's your dissertation about? So my dissertation right now is looking at a uh, ancestral table community called Fioge. And Fioge means basically it's, it's a place of the, the red flicker bird and it's on the Rio Grande. It's North of Okewinge, North of Santa Fe. And so I'm, I'm looking at the site. It's the site is now owned by the tribe of Okewinge. Before then it was, it was privately owned and it's ancestral to Okewinge. So that's one of the things is that Okewinge is, is interested in the archaeology of the site, what information can, can come out of the site itself. There certainly is oral history to it, but they're interested in what the archaeology can fill in some of the gaps, I guess. And so I'm, I'm looking at the site. I'm looking at the agricultural aspects of the site since it's along the Rio Grande. One of the questions I'm, I'm working with right now is, is how far back does irrigation go? So, you know, one of the things is, is a lot of folks have, have suggested in the past that, you know, it depends on the nuances of what you call, you know, irrigation. If you're talking about it as canals, if you're talking about it as as an actual irrigation system with uh, head gates and whatnot off the river, or are you just talking about something that diverts rainwater off the hilltop? But I was wondering if some of the irrigation in that specific area might actually be pre-contact. And... So that's something I'm, I'm looking at because the assumption has oftentimes been that the arrival of the Spanish is when you get the irrigation systems there. And that may be the case, but right now I'm, I'm just looking at it to see if, if there may be a pre-contact stage to these, these ditches. The other thing that's, that's interesting about the site is that, uh, you know, right now there are six Tewa communities in New Mexico, but there's also one in Arizona. One that is uh, on First Mesa up in, in the, the Hopi area. And the community of Fioge that I'm looking at, there's oral history that suggests that the community, when it when it when the people moved from that community, some of them moved to Okewinge itself, which is the village that, that claims ancestry. But some of the folks actually moved all the way to Arizona and were part of that founding group that created the Hopi Tewas or Arizona Tewas on the Hopi Mesas. And so I'm, I'm looking into that. What's, what's interesting about that, too, is that, you know, when scholarship talks about the, the Arizona Tewa, usually it's this idea that they came from the Galisteo Basin or groups from the Galisteo Basin, which, you know, is, is south of Santa Fe. And there were Tewa communities down that way. But there's usually not an assumption in you know scholarly areas of a northern Tewa component to that. And here we have the story of Fioge, which is actually talking about a northern component and a northern component that might actually be one of the a founding component to that uh, Arizona Tewa population. So yeah, so that's that's what I'm working on right now for my dissertation. Excellent, man. Well, I'm, I'm really looking forward to what you find out. Um, that sounds, you know, pretty pretty important. If if your conclusions upend these long held beliefs over some of these um, life ways during the, you know, pre and post colonization period, what what's your goal after you get your dissertation? What's what are you planning on doing next? Well, it's uh, 
<laughs> like everyone else, it's to get employment in this post-COVID era. So I, I'm well, once once things in COVID like settle down and whatnot. Yeah, so basically I, I'm interested in working with the communities, with the tribes. The thing with, with Yoga is that Okewinge is obviously, I mean, they're the they're ownership of the site and it's ancestral to them. And so they're they're obviously an interested party, but they're interested in the connection that the site provides to Arizona. So it's it's not just a research aspect that uh, you know the yoga is important, but the tribe itself is interested in in what that means for them on that connection to to Arizona. So so it's it's actually a, a question that is somewhat driven by the community itself, and not necessarily as much by the archaeology too. So uh, I mean, archaeology definitely is interested, but it's it's heavily driven by what the tribe is interested in, which I think is actually a uh, an interesting perspective. We were talking at the start of this podcast about the differences between archaeology and, and the communities and how they've sometimes have been in the past opposed to each other, and you know what what does partnership look like? And uh, I think that this is one of one of the things that has developed as the field has matured in a sense. And then you throw in indigenous archaeology and all that other stuff too. So yeah, I'm, I'm interested in those kind of, of questions, helping the communities with questions that they have about the past and looking for, for ways that I can contribute to that. It reminds me of something my former advisor, Bob Purcell, always said about, he's worked with Cochiti Pueblo for a long time. And as I was preparing to, to do this work on Navajo Nation, he always taught me to ask, you know, what, what is the community interested in? What can we do to, to help? Not just what can we take? What can we map? So thanks for, you know, underscoring that for our listeners too, that it's about, yeah, what's the community interested in? And those questions end up being, I think, more meaningful for for everybody. So with that, we've wrapped up episode five. We've just interviewed Patrick Cruz about the ongoing meaning of Chaco for descendant indigenous communities, as well as other archeological sites throughout the Southwest. Thank you for listening to Site Bites episode five of season one. We hope you enjoyed this season learning about Chaco Canyon and Southwestern archeology. span You can email me, Carlton, or Rob with your suggestions for which site we should explore in season two. You can find our contact information in the episode notes. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.